I'll trust you on it. I'm excited. Well, this is the Interdisciplinary History Podcast. I am Sloan. I'm Victoria. We should probably welcome everyone to episode 9, which is funny because it's episode 9, but it is actually the 10th episode that we've done because we had a part A and a part B in our second episode. Today, why don't you introduce the book because this was really your project that you wanted us to do. Yes, so today we are going to be talking about The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Ribbenhold. I read this book last summer on audiobook and it was such a game changer for me and it really changed the way I think and I really wanted to hear Sloane's reaction when they read it. Being friends with Victoria is very interesting because you do occasionally get homework and reading lists. We tend to give each other reading material. It's wonderful. It keeps things interesting. But yeah, I have also read this. I ended up getting it in paperback. I tried it on Audible. It's good on Audible. The narration is great. I'm just not an audiobook person by any stretch. If I'm going to listen to something, it's going to be music. And, uh, you know, usually like troubled teenager music. (laughs) Just... I'm in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. You want to know a fun fact about the audiobook narrator for that? Yeah, please. She was in Sherlock. Hmm. She was Molly. Cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. So you should probably tell our listeners what The Five is, what it's about, how it came into being. Yeah. So The Five is written by Hallie Ribbenhold, who is a social historian, and uh, she's done a lot of female-focused history. If you've seen the show Harlots on Hulu, it's based on one of her books called The Covent Garden Ladies. This came into being because she wanted to look into the story and uh, found there was a lot more underneath what was going on with the story of Jack the victims. Because we've been told this one specific narrative about the murdered victims of uh, Jack the Ripper, and that it's that they're prostitutes, and they died because they were prostitutes. And Hallie Rubenhold does re- something really amazing here, and she looks at the lives of the victims and not at the crime itself, which I think is a really good approach, yeah. especially when you're looking at a historical event like this. The fact that Jack the Ripper's name it does appear in the subtitle of the book And the Ripper is not in this book at all. This book is five sections that are sort of snapshots of the Victorian era, but they specifically surround five women who ultimately have something in common later in life, but it's really treating these five lives more as lives and more as case studies in Victorian life. Yes, and it's got lots of interesting points on the way we treat not only women, but mm-hmm. the way we treat sex workers and we, yeah. the way we treat the homeless population. And one of the reasons why I liked this book and why I recommended it to Sloan is that it completely made me change the way about I see crime. I'm a bit of a true crime buff. I wouldn't say fanatic, because uh, that's weird, but I do listen to a lot of true crime. I watch a lot of documentaries. But reading this really made me think, I've only been ever focused on the murderer and the murderer's story. You rarely, if ever, hear the story of the victims. I think we're seeing a little bit more of that now. There's a really good podcast out there called Murder Mile. And the host of that, Michael, he actually looks into a specific area of London and sort of deep dives into the lives of each people. 
specifically the victims more often, but if he can't find a lot of information about them, he might do a look into the murderers. I keep on wanting to call them the villains, because they are villains. Yeah. Something I think that's really important as we start talking about Holly Rubenholt's work, she's not treating these five women, these five historical figures, as victims uh, by any stretch of the imagination. All of the examination that she does is their lives prior to the night of. So that I found really interesting. I would say that this is not a true crime book by any stretch. And I am not particularly fond of true crime. I find it to be quite often crass, even when it's done well. And I would say one of my big issues that I have is not just that the murder stories are being put first, but the people who are delivering information I generally feel like they are commodifying off of other people's tragedies. And there aren't really a lot of standards for the research, for the kind of background fact establishing. One of the things that's certainly in Hallie Rubenthal's thesis, which I think we'll probably talk about what we think her thesis is, is to say that Hallie Rubenthal's big thing in writing this is the idea that Jack the Ripper has become this mythical and mythological villain. And I think that you're absolutely right to want to say villain, because that is the larger-than-life esteem that a lot of these true crime criminals are given. Hallie Rubenthal's big thing for how she feels this has come to be, our cultural consciousness of it, is the media at the time. The media at the time being biased, the media at the time wanting to sensationalize, but the media also wanting to moralize. And how vital it was to the comfort of the readers to say, well, in a way, all these women kind of deserved it because they had a high-risk life. And also how there was a complacency with the police in that. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, Ruben Hold mentions how there was a rule that said that unless a person has been tried or effectively charged with prostitution, you can't say that they're a prostitute. Yeah. And Ruben Hold makes the argument that only two out of the five women are engaged in prostitution, and one of them might not have even been doing that at the time. Yeah. Hallie Ruben Hold has some really great quote, and I have access to flag stickies these days, which is a pitfall to myself and others. But one of the things she writes in the introduction is, a tramp or a vagrant had a life that combined different roles. Part worker, part beggar, and sometimes, depending on circumstance, part criminal or part prostitute. Unfortunately, the vagrancy laws did not attempt to distinguish between these professional identities. Uh, She has professionals in quotes. Beggar, criminal, or prostitute, anyone who lived on the street was viewed similarly and simply categorized as a nuisance. So this is a social history. And because it's a social history, it is looking at norms and values and power. Hallie Rubenthal is asking the question, why do we remember so little about these women and why do we have such a disparaging connection to their identities? Is it fair? Is it valid? And the answer she seems to be getting to is, well, no, it's connected to the class prejudice of the day, and it's connected to the gendered prejudice of the day. And I think that Hallie Rubenhold does a really good job at pointing out how we are still complicit in retelling these stories and 
She has a really good quote at the end here. Let me just go and find it. I do not have flags to keep, but it's here at the end. Um, yeah. So we may be on the same thing, and I do have a flag sticky. She titles her conclusion in quotation marks, just prostitutes, which I think is very powerful, having read the book in its entirety and coming to that at the end. And one of the things she talks about, I'll maybe just read it out again, from the introduction of the Contagious Diseases Act in the 1860s through the period of the Whitechapel murders, very few authorities, including the Metropolitan Police, could agree upon what actually constitutes a prostitute and how she might be identified. Was prostitution simply a woman like Mary Jane who earned her income solely through the sex trade and who self-identified as part of the profession? Or could the term prostitute be more broadly defined? Throughout this book, Hallie Rubenthal speaks to the realities and the desperations of being at the mercy of being a part of the working class or the lower class in London in the Victorian period. Yeah. And she brings up the question of, you know, if you are looking to spend a night indoors somewhere and you choose to get just a room for the night with someone else who is able to pay for you to have that room together, does that equate to prostitution? Is that living off the avails? And I think that that is... Oh, I wasn't going to tell personal stories so early on in this, but I can remember in probably about, like in the last 10 years, but when I was in either junior high or high school, I remember a, it might have been a Fox News story, but I remember a teacher in my class showing it to us as part of our sex ed curriculum. And essentially what it was getting at is prostitution is not simply accepting money for sex. Prostitution can be if you accept gifts from a sexual partner, which is not a valid legal definition, but that is beside the point. And there was this whole, essentially what it was getting at is maybe just don't have sex because you might actually be breaking the law. It was bizarre and it stuck with me to this day. And I think that that style of morality is reflected in Hallie Rubenthal's work. And being a social historian, I think it's important to read her yeah. work and ask, are we so distant from that past? I think we are, if I'm being honest. I am a product of the Catholic school system. Well, I spent up until around grade six in public school, and then I switched to Catholic school. And it is a very stark difference, especially in the way we treat sex ed and the way we talk about sex. It really shames it. And it shames sex work, which is a valid profession. And I think it deserves to be protected. Yeah. And that sex workers deserve protections. And that it's not okay that schools are still teaching abstinence-based sex education, which has been proven yep. to be ineffective. If you're going to tell people not to do something, they're going to do it. And then that's going to actually well, cause more problems. And again, unfortunately, things do happen to us that we don't always want. They do. Yeah. Let's not get too, I guess, far off into the topic of the book. You know, you and I have both been socialized as women, and that is something we're going to have to deal with. Um, I just wanted to say the quote that I was thinking of. So in the way that we're still complicit in the act of murdering these women, why I'm saying that is that we're murdering their characters still after their deaths. So I'm quoting Hallie Rubenhold here. It's just as it did in the 19th century, the notion that the victims were only prostitutes perpetuates the belief that there are good women and bad women, Madonnas and whores. It suggests that there is an acceptable standard of female behavior and those who deviate from it are mm -hmm. fit to be punished. Mm -hmm. 
And then uh, she goes on to say, talking specifically about the way people talk about their opinions on this, is that, quote, they have been integrated subtly into the fabric of our cultural norms, unquote, and goes on to describe specifically the People versus Brock Turner case, which, fairly recent, I was in high school when that happened, and I remember how disgusted I was. Can you tell our listeners what that is? So the People versus Brock Turner case is where Brock Turner, which is a, uh, a student from Stanford University, raped and sexually assaulted a woman while she was under the influence. And it was such a heart-wrenching case. Uh, I believe the victim has now come out with a book talking about her experiences and how that event changed her life. But it was, I remember reading about that and I was just disgusted that this man who brutally attacked this woman got only six Mm -hmm. months. Specifically, you know, for the idea of Jack the Ripper. I think that the fact he wasn't caught may to some degree contribute to why we struggle to remain aware of the human element of this. It feels like there could be something in it there because we didn't ever hold someone guilty and accountable. I almost feel like by some degrees, aside from the fact that like the mystery draws us in, because we weren't able to assign guilt, does it feel less like this happened? Like this actually happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, you know what, that reminds me of like in the first chapter when they talked about how basically with the so-called Autumn of Terror, people were just going wild for this case. And there was a sort of, um, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Moral panic. Mm-hmm. There was a moral panic that occurred. And like people were attacking people who just vaguely fit a description of the murderer in this case. Yeah. And um, so let's, we'll back that up because you are leaving some details out. So there was a moral panic where there was this kind of fear of he's still out there. We don't know who it is. Mm -hmm. It could be anyone. It could be our neighbors. But the moral panic really comes in when people start using this as an outlet for existing prejudices. Like they start feeling like this person is part of a certain ethnic group. We assume that the killer is part of a certain ethnic group because we view that group as inherently violent and inherently less civil than the English are. Yes. So I'm just looking at the quote here. So some stood staring at the places where the vicious deeds had been committed in the hope of finding answers while others were simply entranced by the horror of the spectacle. And then here's another quote is the itch to see justice meted out in the form of a trial was never solved. And so, like you said, I think that that is absolutely why people are so fixated on this case. And like at the end, Ruben Holt talks about how we still see people sort of using the image of Jack the Ripper and his crimes as a way to make money, as a way to um, to make a joke, because like they're like, oh, it's Saucy Jack. Look at that. Let's have a drink named after him or something like that. Because that's what Ruben Holt talks about is like there is instances where bartenders make drinks based on the name of Jack the Ripper and people are still dressing up as him. It's disgusting. And it makes me angry at myself that like when I was younger, I wanted to go on one of those tours. And then now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, no, I probably don't want to because people are making money off of the deaths of these women. So this is a nonfiction book. It's not strictly an academic book. There are some fantastic citations. I'm going to praise her sources later on in the podcast. What do you feel like her thesis of this book is? I think that Ruben Hold's thesis is based on the fact that we look at women, and we look at specifically women of a certain class, as being inherently bad or inherently that there's something wrong with them. And especially when they have been victimized. I think Rubenhold is trying to get at the fact that we look at women of a certain class or victims from 
from a certain class without looking at their lives, without looking at who they are, and that we treat the murderers as more important than the people who were actually killed. Even though the whole process of solving a crime or looking at the story of a crime is trying to solve why this person was killed and who this person was. Mm-hmm. It isn't about the murderer. It's The murderer is just the person who ended it. I think that that's definitely the case with a unsolved case like Jack the Ripper. In terms of treating this actually as history and through a methodological lens, I think that what Hallie Rubenthal, point that she's trying to make that you could apply to things beyond the Jack the Rip case is that when you are using media as your primary sources, you have to be very aware of the role that media plays because media reinforces social values. So I think class is a huge part of it, but the media is driven by spectacle particularly the broadsheets in this time when there are so many of them being produced when they are being read prolifically but also competing with each other a lot. So what I find really significant from this is not just that the papers are reinforcing these norms, but also that the paper has to be conscious to the sensibilities of its readers. So that goes beyond just, well, we already know that lower class women are less worthy, are less virtuous, are more likely to be troubled, are less valuable, but also by not just calling these women tramps or not just saying these women stayed in this particular type of housing or these women were on bad times. When you apply that announcement that they were prostitutes or that they engaged in sex work, that is a very cut and dry activity that you can comfort your reader knowing, well, I'm not a prostitute, therefore I'm safe. He's targeting prostitutes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's so interesting because we have people like Annie Chapman and people are looking at her And they're saying, well, don't be another Annie Chapman. Don't be another, don't be like her. And they're not even looking at the fact that she was a middle-class woman whose uh, husband had a a really good job in that sort of sector of... Sorry, I'm just going to wait a second. The dogs are going bananas. So they were so quick to proclaim these women to be prostitutes. In their inquest reports, they were put down as prostitutes, even though there was no proof of that. They weren't charged of it. The story of the prostitute idea was put in the papers, but they didn't even think so much as to look into the backgrounds of the victims and see, no, this person lived a middle-class life for a long time, and that she had an addiction, she had an illness, and that why she was where she was and that even though they think oh well it it can't happen to us because we're rich we have money it happened to her yeah so definitely Hallie Rubenthal does shed some light on kind of class mobilities and what it means to be ruined in this time period those of us who get history through fiction a lot like we're very aware of the fact that the worst thing that could happen to someone with money is to not have money anymore but again like we've talked about on this show the different between the records that come from the upper classes and the records that come from the masses. So I think that gets about. I want us to talk a little bit more about the book itself because Jack the Ripper is absent from this book. So what Hallie Rubenthal has essentially done is said, well, here's five people who I know the names of. And because I have these five names, I can delve into public records and I can try to piece together these lives. These are case studies of life in the Victorian period. That's what this book is to me, is it is five social histories that happen to end in murder instead of ending in tuberculosis or ending in a nice 
you know, death by old age. So let's talk a little bit more just about what this book contributed to our understanding of the Victorian era. So I think what struck me when I was reading it the first time, and especially now, especially is the discussions of the difference in certain classes, like when like you said, class mobility and how quickly that can change and how these conditions were, the conditions that people were put into were worsened by the people who said that they wanted to fix society, that they wanted to fix immorality, so to speak. Like in the workhouse, some of these women had to rely on that as a place to say, yeah, oh yes, our tea arrived. So sorry, brain tangent, couldn't resist. Squirrel. So we should probably maybe tell our listeners that it's not our tea. Yes, it's your tea, or specifically one person's tea. When Vic says you, she doesn't mean me. She means you, the I listeners. I mean the viewers. The listeners, yes. <laughs> viewers. Yeah, um, I haven't put us on YouTube yet. Uh, someday. Yes. One day. After this episode you know, we is have busy lives. We have busy lives, Sloan. Yeah. If you're hearing me say we're not on YouTube, clearly you're doing fine without us being on YouTube. But yeah, Victoria and I uh, liked this book enough that we wanted to give one of you guys access to it. So we are going to be doing a giveaway. And then Victoria, being Victoria, said, well, we can't give someone a book without tea to drink while they read it. Monstrous. Monstrous. And I'm sorry, we're not giving out coffee. (laughs) We're not coffee drinkers in this friendship. I think that would be dangerous, actually, if you put me on coffee and then put me on the podcast. I just, I don't like the taste of it. I love bitter. I don't like the flavor that is coffee. It's not that I find coffee bitter. I like bitter. Yeah, so... The way we're going to do this giveaway is... Or can I mean... Yeah, yeah go so for it. So we're going to actually run this through Instagram. Basically, you have to be following our page, and then you have to answer a question. And we're going to have two different questions. One that's exclusive only to the podcast here, and one that's answered. If you answer, we'll put your name in for a chance to win the tea and the book. And then, once you've done that, if you like and share your post to your Instagram stories and tell us, that'll be awesome. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm excited to see how it goes. And then we'll mail it to you. We'll probably message you first to get your mailing address. Yeah, we'll do announcement, do a big drop in my hat. I hope it's not going to be a lot, but... (laughs) Yeah, we're saying hat. I'm going to make a spreadsheet and, like, randomly populate. It's beside the point. (laughs) If you answer both of the questions for the podcast on the Instagram, you're entered for both. Yeah, it's fun. So uh, maybe we should ask the question. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can do that. Go for it. The question that we're asking is, what's your favorite episode on the show and why? You can find our full rules for the giveaway on the Instagram. All right. How are we going to transition back into the book? I think we talked about... So I think you wanted to say, and you've already alluded to it a little bit, but I think you wanted to talk about the reception of this book. Uh, Because you read it right when it first came out and when the buzz was really fresh. So I feel like first we need to explain what a ripperologist is so you can understand what the backlash was. So a ripperologist is a person who studies the case, but they study the sensationalized angles of the case specifically. From what I understand, like a lot of them aren't really female. Yeah, so Ripperall just being the study of Jack the Ripper, it's yeah. a very... Like, I can remember being at the uh, Castle Downs Edmonton Public Library in, like, grade six, and, like, you know, I'm not in the kids' section, I'm in, like, the non-fiction section, but it's, like, kind of the kids' stuff, and there being, like, an explore book that was called Ripperology. Probably, like, my first introduction to the Jack the Ripper case, period. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a very buzz term to call yourself, or it was at one point. Yeah, it's not a good community from what I've understood. 
I think they really give into the sort of sensationalized version of the story that everyone's heard, and they say they're experts in that. But they're only experts in the case. They're not experts in the people that this is talking about. Yeah. So Rippenhold had to deal with a lot of people in the Ripperology community who were talking about her book, and they were thinking, why aren't you talking about the murderer? Why aren't you talking about the Ripper? Why are you focusing on these women? Why do you... Why should we care about these women? And like, she's, I still see her sometimes responding to hate comments being like, this is exactly why I wrote the book. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the critiques, I'm sure that those critiques are when she's getting, I think the critiques are more about the fact that she's rewriting the history when she starts challenging the notions of these women were all involved in the sex trade, yeah. or these women were all living on the streets. I think that Rubenhold, like anyone who challenges a really established understanding and a pulp culture understanding, yeah. certainly risks having people say, well, your story is not what I'm used to, and your story is also not more exciting than what I'm used to, so I don't like it. That's exactly it. It's, it's something people are afraid of what's new. We always have, and I think we always will. It's sort of, how has society really changed? We haven't. We're still afraid of new things of new interpretations of the past. Mm -hmm. Hallie Rubenthold, for this episode, I spent a little bit of time looking at kind of her academics beyond this book, uh, because this isn't her first piece of nonfiction. She has a well-established career in uh, the field. And there's a very interesting article I came across that she was one of the respondents to. It was kind of an interview series, the topic of which was, is empathy an aid or a hindrance to his stories? And in the interview response that Hallie Rubenhall gives, one of the things that she says is, quote, No historian wants to be accused of failing to apply a critical eye and making a hasty, inappropriate judgment. But it is also possible that complete dispassion can prevent us from recognizing the subtler human issues at play. In most cases, it is the smaller human stories that influence the larger trends. The personal frustrations and private sufferings, often of people who have been written out of the record, that bring down governments or initiate sweeping social change. So her response to this seems to be that empathy is crucial to the historian. And I would agree with mm. that, because when you're not empathizing with a figure, you open yourself up to deifying or mythifying that figure, which certainly Jack the Ripper is a myth, but also it's very connected to great man history, I think, uh, of which uh, Hallie Roventhold has done some very uh, well-articulated writings against. Yeah. Why is the Ripperology community problematic if we are looking at it through this lens? Being empathetic historians. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the community. Like, to call it that is... I would probably call it more a school of thought than a community, because I'm not involved in it, right? I think one of the very interesting things, though, is the people who subscribe to this kind of ripperology school of thought, I would argue have been accepting, even if they don't subscribe to it, they're willing to give validity to four greater stretches of interpretation of historical fact than Hallie Rubenthal has. You're smiling like you agree with me, Victoria. I do agree with you because they are looking at it through the lens of the newspapers. They're looking at it for the perspectives of the newspapers who came up with lies about 
the vic- in the Annie Chapman section here. Or was it Polly? Let me see. Okay, so they took sections from uh, Amelia Palmer's court testimony, and they completely changed it, varying from different newspaper to different newspaper. They are directly contradictionary. I'm quoting Rubenhold here that says, The most sensationalist angle has Amelia claiming, I am afraid the deceased used to earn her living partly on the streets. Other newspapers, including the Telegraph site, Amelia's testimony more ambiguously and refer only to the fact that Annie was out late at night at times. Some publications even omitted a reference to her mode of life altogether. So that's basically talking about how the newspapers came up with something in order to create a story. Yeah, absolutely. And a moralizing story. Yeah. This being an unsolved case, like the majority of ripperologists, because they're not interested in doing a social history or interested in looking at the lives of the victims, also tend to spend a lot of time speculating on who was Jack the Ripper. Which is where I find some of the crassness to come yeah. in. Because there's a lot of time spent... It's very, very odd. Because I think one of the things that's frequently been said about him is he must have had medical training. Or, you know, there was something to do with the way the killings were carried out that suggests he was a doctor. One of the things that I have heard speculated about Jack the Ripper that always comes to my mind is the idea that it wasn't Jack the Ripper, but Jill the Ripper. And this theory is that Jack the Ripper was a mad abortionist or a mad midwife. And the thing I find so fascinating about that theory is a Aside from the fact that there isn't really a lot to make you think that, already you have a fair amount of victim blaming in the way this case is talked about. Already you have a fair amount of, well, they were doing something they shouldn't have, and this is a consequence. But when you make the killer a woman as well, and an abortionist, that just levels on an additional degree of morality, particularly of the era, right? Do you want to talk, talk about the H.H. Holmes? Yes. He's most famously known for his murder hotel. I'm putting quotation marks around murder hotel, where he would lure in people as customers and then he would systematically kill them and then sometimes turn their bodies into medical skeletons for schools. It's a disgusting story. Anyways, a couple of years ago, I think I was around 17-ish, I was watching TV and I sort of flipped to the History Channel which is never a good move. <laughs> it's never a good thing. I always was hoping MASH would be on because that's what they typically play is like six hours of, of MASH a day. But no, there was this terrible documentary about um, A.K. Holmes's, I think, great-grandson trying to solve the Jack the Ripper case with a former FBI programmer. Yeah, so I, I remember when this came out. And I mean, it's difficult to fault someone who wants to, you know, do some of their own familial history, particularly when they're descendant of someone of note. Uh, You know, someone who still exists pretty prominently in the public consciousness. Because it was done on the History Network, that always raises a red flag. Major red flag. Yeah, but one of the things that H.H. Holmes' grandson is postulating is that he believes his grandfather was responsible for the Jack the Ripper killings. We think he think his ancestor traveled to England and went around a little bit and then yeah. killed a couple of people and came back to the United States because he was from there. Um, neither of us rewatched this for this episode, so we should tread lightly. I don't really want to go back to it either because I remember there was a point where I got very frustrated mm-hmm. because they were looking at the from hell letters. 
Ah. Yes. So, and like you would think going into a documentary, there would be at least a little bit of research done first. But they were looking at a photocopy of the From Hell letters that had been done. And they're like, oh, can I get a blood sample from this? Oh, yeah. That's charming. Yeah, and the guy was like, no, we can't. The letters are lost. Mm -hmm. They don't exist anymore. They were probably blown up during the Blitz, like most of the evidence. I didn't actually know that. That is a cool fact that I get to take away from this episode. You're bringing up from hell. Obviously, there's something that we want to get to. Do we want to get to it now? Do we want to leave kind of literary depictions for you? Yeah, get to it now, because I want to rant with you. All right, let's leave that to the end, then, because we've got a fair bit more to get through. While we're talking about kind of the theorizing that the community has done surrounding the figure, one of the other theories that's been popularized by historians who have particularly focused on Jack the Ripper is the idea that there was a connection to the royal family, and sometimes that gets framed as this was a cover-up, which is, again, very, very salacious. Yeah. But I think also emblematic of really, really, really cherry-picking your history. Because I understand the pieces they're putting together. However, it's a lot easier, I think, and a lot more realistic, I think, to just say, well, the investigation didn't go anywhere because there wasn't far for the investigation to go. Forensics is budding in this time. It's certainly, you know, coming out, but it's not a science yet. Like, it's not a well-established body of knowledge. It's a emerging set of tools. It hasn't been refined. So I think that it's very jaded to look back and say, oh, well, there are things that today are proven and are standard practice that certainly were starting to be used in the Victorian period, but they weren't proven and they weren't widely accepted yet. So to say, well, this thing that is widely accepted today was actually first conceptualized by this time doesn't actually mean that it would have been used. And I think you have to keep in mind the way that we adopt knowledge rather than just being like, oh, they chose not to use it because there was this cover-up. I think a lot of the sort of theories that have come about about this case are just bonkers. And I think it's very reflective of the media frenzy that came out around this case. Yeah, I think that this is a 130-year-old media frenzy at this it's point. It's kind of like how with cases like the John Bonet Ramsey case, how people are still coming up with these crazy theories yeah. years later because it's an unsolved case. It's lingering on people's minds. Yes. And I, I don't know. I'm not fond of the quasi-investigative sort of, I don't know. I'm not super fond of the true crime genre. I think that there's a lot of people who get caught up in the salacious details uh, and it becomes a little crass. Yeah, I agree. And I find that sometimes with true crime, I get disgusted with the way that they are always so focused on who the killer is, that they lose sight of who the victim was and who the loss of the victim has been. Because I think with a lot of true crime cases, I've heard about this, is that a lot of these true crime shows have actually dug up a lot of bad wounds and uh, re-traumatized people. Because they're just sort of putting salt on a gaping wound. And it's not helping because some cases are just constantly getting false tips and it gets people's hopes up again and again. 
And it's funny, because yeah. there's contemporary true crime, there's kind of the, like, Hull crime of another era that was contemporary to its era, but we do have sort of a subcategory of historic crime and historical true crime. Yeah. And I am not altogether opposed to the idea that crime or a criminal act can be a good stepping stone into the past. I think Holly Rubenthal in this book that we've both thoroughly enjoyed shows that. You have a name, you have court records, you have have an event that happened, what were the circumstances that allowed that to happen, but I don't know that it's good methodologies being used by everybody who's using this to step into history. Aaron Mankey, yeah. who does the Lore podcast and now, you know, has his Amazon Prime show and all that, a lot of his episodes do deal with a court record or a criminal act or that, but his 30-minute episode is not 30 minutes talking about the details of the crime. It's 30 minutes talking about everything in that society that had values that contributed to that crime or contributed to the act being criminalized. Yeah, and that actually just brings me back to like a course I, which is post-confederation history. It was my first year of university. Anyways, so our final project was to analyze a historical crime out of two crimes, one being a train explosion and the other being the death of William Robinson, a black man who died on Salt Spring Island out in BC, and how it was sort of like a locked room murder and how it remained unsolved. My professor made us look, use these cases as a study to examine ideologies at the time, how the criminal system was working, because um, I had a bunch of ideas about who the suspects were, and because there wasn't an actual police service, there was this sort of group that called themselves the police, and a lot of people actually thought that they were involved in the case. Just looking back on that and examining racism in Canada during early confederation. It was just interesting and you really brought me back to that for a second there. Yeah. Well, and I know you and I have both taken uh, the history course that's offered uh, at McEwen, Crime and Society in Early Modern Europe. Yeah. The operative thing in that class title being society. Yeah. I'm fairly certain that I wrote my term paper in that course on sedacious liable. So I can tell you what the laws were. They are recorded. They're written down. That is not the point for me to rattle off. This is what it said you couldn't do. And it's not the point for me to rattle off. This is what you said you couldn't do. And in this year, this person did that thing he wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Rather, why? And laws are meant to instill a sense of order. So when something gets codified as disorderly and gets codified as criminal, that can be very interesting. When you look at the situation that someone finds themselves in to transgress that, or to be the victim of a transgression of that, that's very interesting. Hallie Rubenthal's answer to why these women died, by large extent, is they were vulnerable, not they put themselves in a vulnerable position. They were vulnerable. Yeah, she talks about how many of them were likely asleep when the attacks happened. Yes. And that's why they didn't hear anything, like they didn't hear a sound. Yeah, and perhaps they were less able to fight themselves off. Keeping in mind that all but one of these victims is in their 40s, which I think also disrupts her idea of the sort of young, but she's lost her innocence and she was almost destined, which is, I think, a way that we look at this case in particular a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, I think so. All right. Yeah. So, I think that's a good summary. Yes. So, pause your review. The thing I'm most interested in is what did you learn because you read this book, but not specifically about the murders? I think I learned more about the way I think about people in history. 
Okay. And sometimes with a historical figure or a historical moment, you forget that they are not just characters in a story. Yeah. That they were people, they lived lives, they made mistakes, they loved and they lost and they were affected by those things. And I hadn't really thought of it in that way, which is really unfortunate as a history student. But like, unfortunately, that was the way that you're kind of socialized to think of historical figures is that they aren't, they're lost to time. They weren't, they're pictures in a book. You don't need to focus on them more than that. Like, sure, they did stuff, but you don't need to look at their lives. And so reading this was like, no, I think every story is valid. Mm-hmm. That you can look into a person and then you could still find and learn something. What about you? I found this to be a very valuable social history. I were ever to be tasked with writing about the realities of poverty. I would probably want to cite some stuff from this. I would probably want to talk a little bit about immigration as well. While it doesn't have charts and tables and numbers and graphs, this is certainly an economic history, which I wasn't actually expecting. And I was quite pleasantly surprised by I found it was very approachable for that. I liked what it talked about in terms of social forces, because Hallie Rubenthal talked a little bit about the realities of getting into lodgings and the expectations that your landlord would have on you as a potential tenant. That I found very interesting. Oh, I did too. I was also fascinated by the information about the workhouses. Like, I even marked off pages where she did descriptions of, like, say, the skilly, or how many nights were you expected there, how much it would take, and specifically how that would affect a person if they were, say, Annie Chapman trying to go and see her dying husband. Yeah. This book should not be about the fact that these five women died from a figure who we refer to as Jack the Ripper. Yeah. This is a case study of five family lives, five human lives. So I found that really, really good. There's a really, really good conversation on immigration that I was not expecting, but I, ooh, when the time comes that I can use that, I am citing the hell out of it. The other thing I think that Hallie Rubenthal addresses really well, because she's talking about the way that the media had ideals and morals to reinforce, is it's a very good examination of the prescribed versus the reality. And I think that that is needed in our understanding of the Victorian period because we have a certain perception that most of us know isn't 100% accurate of a very prim, proper, and repressed Victorian period. We know that it wasn't that. But because she is talking about the way the media has contributed to our understanding of this case, that made me really understand where our misconceptions are coming from. Our misconceptions are coming from we have a well-defined history that's built out of the prescriptive sources. We don't have as much of a body of knowledge around the realities because the realities didn't leave the same types of sources yeah. behind. Alright, criticisms or things that you would have liked to see. So when I was reading the section on Elizabeth Stride, had these women charged for prostitution even if they were just being women in the street, I think that I wanted to see more of that and that it would have been beneficial to read more about how being a woman who is single or walking alone could put you at risk of ruination. Absolutely. There's something in the U.S. uh, for a time called the Chamberlain Con Act, which is a, it's a public health act is kind of how it gets put into place. But it essentially opens women up to be stopped and spot checked or sent to be spot checked for certain infectious diseases, sexually transmitted infections. 
And it is very much used as a way to control or exert control over women who aren't properly... Women who are out alone, but also the language of what gets you stopped is simply you look suspicious. And we know that looking suspicious can more often than not be tied to your physical appearance than any behaviors you're engaging in. I'm just going to quickly Google because I can't remember... Chamberlain Khan Act. Yeah, so it's a couple of decades beyond the Victorian era, which is honestly just that little bit more chilling. It comes into effect in 1918. But yeah, I think that you're absolutely right to say that there is kind of almost an element of surveillance I think you're getting at. Yeah, I can only imagine how being searched like that or being examined could put a woman at risk for sexual violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's when all I was thinking was, this feels very non-consensual. It scared me because I think with any role with a certain sort of power, there is this feeling that because you can exert a sort of control over someone, that you can and you can do that in a violent way. Absolutely. When I was reading that, my heart just broke because Elizabeth she was so young and she was just, she was held against her will and she miscarried her child because of the way that she was treated. Yeah. Yeah. They are emotional stories. And I mean, going back to, I suppose, that interview that Ruben Hall did where she talks about the role she feels empathy has in understanding history, I think is very, very much in line with yeah. that. I'm looking through my show notes, and I just wanted to add one more thing on the topic of sensationalism quickly. So there is a woman on YouTube who goes by the name Dr. Cat. She does indeed have a PhD in history. But she reviewed this book, and I listened to her review in the prep for this episode. And one of the things she talks about about our cultural consciousness of Jack the Ripper, and something that Hallie Rubenthal makes very clear in all of her discussions of her own book is the idea of the canonical victims. That's how Holly Rubenfall refers to these five women in this book, is they are the canonical victims. Now, if you're familiar with the case, you know that there have been other deaths attributed to Jack the Ripper. There's been even questions about, do we know for sure that these five women were all killed by the same individual? Again, it's not relevant to what Rubenthal is trying to say. Rubenthal is just trying to give you five case studies about people whose names are only ever attributed for their relationship to this other figure. On the topic of the idea that there could be more, Dr. Cat on YouTube states, we debate the body count as if adding to it will increase his notoriety. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. The history that Holly Rubenthal is writing, it would not matter if none of these women were killed by the same individual. Yeah. All that matters is they're attributed to the same individual, and that's the only reason they've endured in memory, is as plot devices in what has essentially become a mythical figure. Like, we don't ever expect to have concrete answers. So why are we like this? Why are we like this? Why is Haley Rubenthal the outlier in the way that she's treated this case? Something that this book left me wanting more. And yeah. It's a good length book. I'm certainly not suggesting that this is a deficit. But something that I think is the next natural step that Hallie Rubenthal doesn't really do is 
those left behind. Most of these women have children and family members who she's able to identify and who she's able to say, you know, the last time they saw this person would have been this long before their death. I would have really liked for her to pursue those records further. Just because she spends a lot of time talking about the families that these women were born into, she spends a lot of time talking about social realities in their parents' generation. If Holly Rubenhold would like to write a sequel, I would be very down for that. I I I think that would be really good. Um, yeah. I'm also really hoping that he gets what she wants in getting a memorial for the victims, because that's what I was sort of getting at before we got on our tangent is, like, she's right, there has never been a memorial, but there's only been people glorifying their deaths. Yes, there's been a huge tourism industry that's profiting off it, and it's pretty morbid. Another thing that I would kind of be curious about is I would like Hallie to take her methodology, which I think is phenomenal, and again, just do more for me. Like, I would be very curious to look at where were these women buried? What did proceedings look like, again, after their death? I completely understand why she chose not to do that, because her whole point is we only ever talk about what happened after they died. She wants to talk about what happened before they died. But I think she could take her methodologies and do more justice to what happens afterwards. I do think that that there is a problem that comes with finding certain graves, because a lot of these women were put into paupers' graves. Yeah, and that's sort of what I'm getting at, is I would love, because her methodology is so solid and because she's so inclusive and holistic in the way that she does her research, I would like to hear more about that. Too, honestly. Yeah, beyond that, excellent, excellent body of primary sources that she draws from. Her notes section is very extensive. Her sources section is very extensive. It is. I wish she had used footnotes and endnotes, and that may just be me. This is a very accessible read, which I think is within her motives for writing it, but personally as someone who spends more time in academic writing, I would really like a version of this that has the footnotes and endnotes, has those citations, and expects more of me as a reader. Not to say that she didn't expect things from her reader, but just, it's a very, very accessible read, and... I would like to read more from her that's geared more towards the hard academics. I got, with my Audible credit, her Convent Garden Ladies book. Mm -hmm. So I'd be curious to see how she does that, considering how well done this book is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that I'd like to see more uh, nonfiction like this. I find that there isn't... Like, this book has become relatively popular, and I think that should open up a bunch of doors in having more accessible social histories like this written, because there is a market for it. And narrative styles are a lot easier to to digest. Obviously, Jack the Ripper has the notoriety where there's been a lot of fictionalized accounts. You've mentioned quite a few of them to me, kind of as we were prepping for these episodes. I think our listeners should get to hear from you on that. Okay, so one of the first young adult series I actually got into, by a a relatively famous author now, she wrote 
Let It Snow with John Green and the Truly Devious series, which is in part actually inspired by the Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping. It's pretty thinly veiled, but yeah. The Shades of London series is inspired by the Jack the Ripper killings, and it focuses around a young girl who comes to live in London and go to a boarding school while some copycat is recreating the killings. And one of the nights, she sees someone who might be the killer, and there's a whole bunch of ghost stuff involved, but one thing that, looking back on it, is actually kind of connects with Ruben Holden, is that the women in that series that were killed were normal people. It was probably just a device just to make it more palatable to teens, but thinking back on the literature that's come out of the Jack the Ripper killings, and sort of how they have been fictionalized in turn, the uh, women who are sort of proxies for the victims that are just normal people. I think that's kind of a beneficial take. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, because I... I'm fairly certain that Murdoch Mysteries did a episode where they were kind of implying that maybe Jack the Ripper came to Canada. You know, it's Murdoch Mysteries, it's highly watchable, and if you think critically about it, it's not great. Like, it's Canadian property. Yeah. Beyond that, like, in terms of fictional representations, the thing that immediately comes to mind is... The graphic novel by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, From Hell, which, so it takes the kind of popularized theory that it was Queen Elizabeth's grandson or grandnephew who was, who got some women pregnant, and that's why the killings occurred. It is unreadable. I have it sitting in hardcover that I got off Amazon, uh, cause a problematic ex- Uh, told me I had to read it. (laughs) It is so dehumanizing uh, in its entire portrayal of it. It's so... um, It's just kind of gross. Like, it really doesn't treat the treat at all with any gravity. It's very, very much reminiscent of probably what the newspapers looked like and the way the newspapers were treating it. But for what is altogether a pretty critically acclaimed novel, and it got made into a movie with Johnny Depp, not good. Like, like I don't recall being able to make it through yeah. it. Uh, I'm not a huge graphic novel person, so I'm willing to say that's part of the issue. I couldn't either, and I bought it for like five bucks from HMV. I couldn't either. <laughs> right. It was so bad. Oh, um, yours was five dollars? I spent like 60 bucks on that monstrosity, and... Uh... Because he wouldn't loan it to me. He always burn it. Like, that was the... I don't burn books. We know I don't burn books. Yeah, no, he had it. He wasn't going to let me borrow it. What the fuck? But I had to read it. I was uncultured for not having read it. This guy's favorite movie of 2019 was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. (laughs) I think you said it right when you said Alan Moore is the Quentin Tarantino of... (laughs) of comic books. I did say that I have that suspicion. Again, I'm not enough of a comic book person to, you know, slander anyone by comparing them to Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. But, But, I mean, pretty bad. Like, like, if you guys have looked... But, you know, again, like, to talk about the way that, like, profiting off of tragedy, I do feel that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was very much... We've talked about this in another episode. I can't remember if I left it in in editing. I I don't think we did, but I think that, like, in a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films, uh, specifically Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and In Inglorious Bastards, he's profiting off of 
other people's pain, specifically yeah. the pain of, of the Holocaust and uh, the pain that comes from the, the Manson murders. Yeah, and I think that the Once Upon a Time Hollywood story, and I suppose by extent, I'm really, really worried that we're repeating ourselves because we did the Jojo Rabbit versus Inglorious Bastards episode, and I don't remember what I edited out because that was months ago. To me, when Tarantino approaches history, because he does write historical fiction, it's almost like he's sitting there being like, well, I can think of a clever thing, and I can invent clever characters who would have saved the day. I'm not strictly against counter-historical narratives. I love V for Vendetta. I think that's excellent social commentary. Yeah. You know, yeah, you and I both have stuff that we like in that kind of subgenre. There is not a lot of respect being done in things like From Hell or things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or that, right? And I think that the issue is that they don't have a connection to the women, so how could they empathize with Potentially, I mean... And they don't understand, like, the victims. I don't think that they understand how much pain that they, they went through. They're just glorifying the deaths. I suppose, but, and like... Kind of stuff. I agree with you that that's probably what's happening. I'm gonna go ahead and say that is a weak sauce excuse. If you have a human life, you should be able to understand the worth of a human life. Yeah. And I'm not a woman. I can't understand why a woman wouldn't want to be stabbed. Like go to hell <laughs> that they understand like say like what it was like during the victorian period to be a woman and to be a woman without yeah. means or quentin tarantino he sees the sharon tate murder and he sees well i can fix it i can fix it is the good story or like perhaps i'm repeating myself at this point but to say well they never caught jack the ripper so he must have been brilliant a lot of cases went unsolved a lot, a lot of cases have continued to go unsolved. It's not brilliance, it's chance. It's lack of evidence. It's lack of evidence, it's... With the Jack the Ripper murders, it's tampering with a crime scene. Like, mm -hmm. anyone walked on, they... Like, I think I remember there was a incident where someone stole one of the shawls off of the victims. And yeah. had it soaked in their blood. Which is yes. disgusting. I yeah. think my issue with Quentin Tarantino is that he says, I can fix a story, but I can fix it without empathy. And I can fix it without characterization. Because that's what he does. He doesn't seem to have empathy for his characters in, in Glorious Bastards, who are Jewish characters, who are going through this massively terrible moment in their history. He makes it a suicide. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure mm -hmm. how much the Inglourious Bastards conversation I'm going to keep in just because we did a whole episode on we it. We did a whole episode on it, but, you know, it's... We still have thoughts on Quentin Tarantino. I know, but, like, this isn't, this, you know... This is about... There's yeah. only... And here's the... Here's my main thing. The Quentin Tarantino episode is the least listened to at this point. Yeah. I can take a hint. People <laughs> like Quentin Tarantino so much, but they can't examine him. He is yeah. not a god of film. So on the last sort of like way the Ripper has been in media, I think most recently in the fiction world, one of the most popular book series out there has been um, the Stalking Jack the Ripper series by Carrie Maniscalco. Okay. It's a good mystery series, mm -hmm. but it's about a young female forensic student who's learning from her uncle. She wants to solve these crimes. But even if I like, Carrie Maniscalco takes the H.H. H. Holmes angle. Mm. Yeah. Say it was H.H. H. Holmes all along in the fourth book. Do you think that was planned from the beginning, or do you think that that was like a decision that was made ten pages before she wrote it? It was planned because from the beginning we know that the person who they think is the Ripper has an accomplice. 
Mm. Well, they think that the accomplice is the one who did it. Uh, Sorry for those people who want to read the Stalking Jack the Ripper series. I started reading it when I was a young, uncultured 17-year-old. I have fond memories of reading it, but after reading this book, it definitely made me... If we ever decide to totally sell out on this podcast, we're making t-shirts that say young, uncultured 17-year-old. Yeah. Former young, uncultured 17-year-old. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And they would have books underneath, because cute. Or, you know, it could not be cute, and then I would want something to do with it. Alright, having read this, where does Hallie Rubenhold leave you wanting to go from here in your understanding? I personally, just because it is very much what I'm interested in, I sort of want to learn more about the surveillance that did happen. Uh, Things like the landlords keeping watch on things, things like local um, members of the Metropolitan Police Force kind of the way that an eye was kept on things. Because I think so much of the story that we hear around Jack the Ripper is and no one saw any but Hallie Rubenthal does point out that just because no one saw who did it doesn't mean that there wasn't a community keeping watch on itself. So I would love to take this book and go off and research that more. So I think reading this makes me want to look more into the poor laws, and specifically the workhouses, and to the casual wards, because I was interested in the sort of the rules of the casual ward and the conditions that are in there, specifically what it would be like to be a woman who's staying overnight in a place like that, because there was a little bit of a description of how there was a lot of sexual violence specifically from the male porters there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the idea of the poor laws, because again, like I think that that is something that Hallie Rubenthal does really well to mention, but could have elaborated on more. She's very good at saying, because this act happened in whichever year, these were the downlines. I wish that she had actual quotes or passages of what those laws were. Just because I'd like the evidence to see where her interpretations are coming from, you know? Mm -hmm. I also thinking, like, how can this approach be used in different cases or with different historical figures? How could using this approach help to examine a sort of period in history? Sure. Like, can you give me an example? Going back to the William Robinson case, I would like to sort of look back on that again and sort of see how using an interpretation like this when studying being an early settler in Canada, but also being an early black settler coming up from America, being a former slave, how that would affect you. Yeah, I agree completely with that. That's one of the sort of projects that stuck with me after all these years because it's unsolved and it's really sad. I might include a link to that in the description in case people want to read about that because there's an amazing archive that has collected all the documents about the William Robinson case, which I think deserves a lot more looking into. absolutely. One more area just because we haven't touched on it yet, but if you are someone who's interested in substance use history and the history of the addiction and you just want something to supplement your understanding of the gin craze without strictly being about the gin craze certainly that comes up in Ruben Holt's examination of these women's lives as well 
Yes, absolutely. A lot of these women struggled with alcoholism. And throughout Ribbonhold's writing, we see how the moralistic ideas of the time really caused these women to feel guilt about that, but also they couldn't really escape their addiction because there was a really good therapy for it. Yeah, the way alcohol exists in this society is very, very interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting reading about Annie Chapman and her struggles with alcoholism and sort of the way that Ribbonhold described it is like, Annie Chapman did go into a sort of rehab therapy, like an early, and she came home. Ribbonhold really describes how hard it was to be an alcoholic in a time, because then she describes how Annie's husband had a cold, and so he had whiskey. And of course, because of whiskey, then that just causes its own problems, especially for a struggling alcoholic. That's going to be a trigger, a massive trigger. Yeah, and also like, Having an alcohol addiction isn't really being talked about in those medical terms in this day and age. Again, like, Hallie Rubenhold is so conscious whenever she approaches a primary source of the biases of that source that she does a very good job translating things into our modern values. In this time period... To be troubled by drink is a very individualistic thing. But the sort of sympathy or empathy that Ruben Holt approaches those topics with is much more rooted in our contemporary understandings. And I think, again, that gets us away from victim-blaming mentalities because we have those better understandings in this, uh, in our own contemporary. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. Oh, this has been a good recording. It has. It has. Yeah. Alright, uh, so we're just gonna splice this right in because we were in the course of editing when we found out about this and we didn't want to delay it. We would love to do a shout out to a new patron of ours who has just joined our Patreon, uh, very first. Vic, would you like to announce the name? Yes, lovely friend Sheila Clark is our first patron. At the $3 tier level, she is our esteemed patron, which I'm very happy about. And thank you so much, Sheila, for all your support. Sheila has been supporting us from the beginning, listening to every single episode and giving us feedback. She is so kind, and we are so happy to have her listening to the show and supporting us. You want me to sign out? Yeah, I guess just, you know, thank you for listening again, everybody. We hope that you guys will take part in, tr- you know, in our book raffle. Giveaway. Giveaway. Here's the thing. We need at least one of you to participate because Vic and I already each have a copy of this book and already each downloaded it on Audible. We don't need another one. We have enough I- books. We don't need duplicates. Yeah. And we also are not sociable people. So it's not like we have friends that we're going to give these to. Just, you know. Tell us your favorite episode. Give it to. Make a suggestion. It's fine. Like, uh, Twitter rules. Yeah. Do it in under 150 characters. That's all we need. Yes. And if you don't win, this one goes well. We might do one in the future. We don't know. But also, we hope you pick up this book. Because I feel like there's a lot to be learned from it. I don't know about you, Sloan, but I feel like... I think that anyone could learn a bit from uh, Ruben Hold and her writing. Yeah. How did you phrase it about 17-year-olds earlier? I think I said, um, back when I was an unintelligent uh, 17-year-old. I don't think it was unintelligent. Uncultured. Uh, Yeah, uncultured. Uncultured. Yeah. So if, like me, you have 
a bunch of old true crime books from when you were a uncultured teenager. I like I wish that this was the one I was reading back then when I was, you know, into that. I have mentioned a few times this episode, I really don't care for the sensationalism of true crime. This is not that. So I feel fine recommending this to people because I don't feel like this is expletive of other people's misfortunes by any extent whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is a really good book and I feel like it's very well written. I think it's accessible, especially if you're not a nonfiction fan. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like if you don't really like nonfiction and you don't know how to approach it, certain nonfiction books can be really hard to read. Ruben Holt's book is so accessible. Vic and I, as we always like to remind you and acknowledge that we are both living and doing this podcast in Edmonton, which is on Treaty 6 territory. We acknowledge that this land has traditionally and continues to be a home place of gathering for many indigenous peoples. That matters to us. Like, we're not just saying that because it is yeah. the buzz term of the day to do land acknowledgements. Victoria and I have both looked at history enough to know that not acknowledging things like that continues to be problematic. So we want to not see those things be forgotten. Uh, you found our podcast, so you must know where to find it. We're on pretty much all podcast directories, so if right now you want to switch, go for it. All of our social medias are in the descriptions. We will have links to our pages and our blog down there as well. We'll have our citations down there and our emails down there if you want to shoot us a link. Or if you're not active on social media, but you still want to enter the contest, I feel like Vic would be fine no if problem. you emailed no us. No problem at all. Um, yeah. We would also really appreciate it if you guys took the time to uh, share a podcast with your friends and family, uh, if you have the chance to. Or please leave us a rating on or view on Apple Podcasts or uh, Podchaser. Uh, it really helps, and uh, we really appreciate it. And if you do leave a review, we might uh, say thank you in our one of our episodes. Yeah. All right, guys. Have a great week, couple of weeks. I don't know when we're posting next. We've been on a roll. Uh, but also, you know, finals are going to come soon. We've got papers. Just keep an eye out for us. Yeah. It'll probably never be more than three weeks. The idea was to do this monthly, and we've rapidly surpassed that. Yeah. We just were eager beavers, and we love doing this. There's nothing else to do. <laughs>